Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Well, thank you, Mary, and um, welcome, everyone. I'm glad it's not snowing right now, as it will be in two days' time, it looks like. Um, I want to thank the organizers of tonight's event, uh, Global Minnesota, uh, President Mark Ritchie, and also the Humphrey School of Public Affairs uh, for their support um, in this annual event. Um, I also want to welcome you to uh, the 2020s. Uh, we're at the dawn of a new decade here. Um, it's going to be a fateful one. Uh, we're in election year, as we all know. Uh, looking around, I must say that in both parties, we are dealing, quite frankly, with an aged leadership. These are, this really is the last gasp of the boomers. We've had four boomer presidents in a row, uh, three of them born in 1946 within a few months of each other. Uh, during this decade, there will be three presidential elections. And we're going to be entering into a period of a new generation. We have to hope with new thoughts, new perspectives on a world that is changing very rapidly because we are facing a number of very, very um, tricky trade-offs that I will try to describe in the course of my remarks tonight. Looking back at the past decade, the 2010s, we can see now that the sort of hallmarks of that turbulent decade were the aftermath of the 2008 economic crisis, which in retrospect was actually worse than we imagined at the time. It is still affecting us. Um, it is part of what led to uh, another feature of this past decade, which is the rise of populism and nationalism, especially in the West, uh, a rising anti-globalization sentiment for which all too often uh, immigration becomes the scapegoat. Um, because that also has been firing this movement. In the 2010s, Russia began to punch above its weight, way above its weight, um, in Europe and Ukraine and also in the Middle East. And China's rise began to translate into real political and even military power. And as might have been predicted uh, from history, when you have a rising power, uh, the status quo power often begins to react. And that is what we're seeing today. Um, the United States during the past 10 years has become a factor for uncertainty um, as we have veered back and forth between administrations and even within administrations. Um, we have begun to uh, neglect our diplomacy and in its place use and overuse sanctions which really has become the default mode for our foreign policy right now. Uh, this is causing reactions, including among our allies, as I will describe tonight. Um, we're able to use sanctions because of our role in the global economy, the role of the dollar, uh, which uh, we risk uh, wearing away uh, if we overuse this tool. And the final hallmark of this past decade, and it is the, the most important one, is what is happening to the climate? What is happening to our planet? I think during the past 10 years, uh, the concrete examples of global warming and the crises we're going to face uh, going forward are becoming ever more clear. And as we enter the 2020s now, this is, whether we realize it or not, the key issue. Um, it is an issue uh, that is one of shared global threats, the, the, the threat facing us ought to bring us together uh, among nations, uh, ideally, um, because we're all in this together. And it's very unfortunate in light of this that what we are seeing is a return to old geopolitical competitions. Um, there's, this is the major contradiction uh, of this approaching decade. Uh, I think the Madrid COP25 conference kind of uh, symbolizes this. It was a failure. Uh, it broke down. Of course, we had, we had pulled out of the Paris Agreement already, but other countries were less in a mood to cooperate 
uh, than they were at the Paris conference. Um, and as I say for the moment, uh, ge rising geopolitical competition, uh, nationalism in many countries is taking precedence over what is the key issue of the coming decade. Now the United States is obviously part of this. We are reacting now. We are going back, if you will, to old think. Uh, if you look at our national security strategy, which came out in late 2017, it embodies the same strategy that we have used since 1945. And in a nutshell, that strategy is having been drawn into World War II because Japan and Germany came to dominate their own regions. Our goal ever since 1945 has been to prevent the rise of what they call a peer competitor, to prevent the rise of any country that would dominate its region the way we dominate ours. Um, and that is why you see the structure of our military presence in the world since 1945 with 800 military bases around the world at present um, and divided, yes, into regions where we are, uh, we are vigilant against the rise of a peer competitor. Now, we took a holiday from this in the 1990s. In fact, our national strategy says, yes, we took a holiday, unfortunately. With the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, we began to think that this kind of competition was over. Terrorism became the main issue. China was rising fairly peacefully. We engaged China. Uh, in the WTO. We didn't see them at that point as a threat. But this is what has shifted now. This is what has shifted fundamentally. Uh, the, new, the new doctrine singles out China and Russia as threats to the United States that must be countered. So there are really uh, three regions in this sort of mindset that we're going back to um, where we are trying to stave off potential hegemons. Obviously, China rising fast in Asia and also across Eurasia. Russia, which uh, is still a major, major uh, presence in Europe. And then the Middle East, which is a new interest we didn't have in 1945, uh, where we are trying to prevent um, Iran from becoming dominant in the Middle East. And of course, we're being urged on in this uh, by our allies in the region, Saudi Arabia and Israel. And this is the backdrop to the crisis that we're facing now at the beginning of the year, um, one that could lead to war, potentially. Um, we have to hope not. Uh, the, uh, the JCPOA, uh, which was, let's see if I have that here. Yes, there it is. Sorry. Um, which was signed uh, in, on July 14th, 2015, um, addressed the issue of Iran, which, um, since the Iran-Iraq war, um, had found Iran uh, defending itself, if you will, trying to create uh, uh, strategic depth, trying to influence the region by allying with proxy forces all through the Middle East, most often fellow Shia forces, whether Hezbollah um, in Lebanon or Hamas in the West Bank. And of course, we, in a way, created this possible strategy by removing what had been the great counterweight to Iranian power, which was Iraq. During the Iraq war, we backed Saddam Hussein in that incredibly bloody war. Um, but later, our invasion uh, removed him and the Sunnis from power and brought in a Shia government, which has become ever closer to Iran. Um, so this is seen uh, as a power shift in the region. And when you add to that, the thought that Iran might try to get nuclear weapons, this is a problem that all administrations have had to address. Now, the, the approach of the Obama administration, as we all know, was to try to uh, diffuse the nuclear issue um, in conjunction with Germany, France, the UK, China, Russia, and the EU, what's called the P5 plus 1 agreement. Um, this was a, an international agreement, not bilateral. And I think the goal was to, in a sense, ease the pressure on Iran in order to allow Iran to evolve from the inside. Um, the goal was to change the regime, uh, but peacefully. Um, Iran has a young population, very Western-oriented. I think the calculation was all that was keeping it really behind the government was the outside pressure. This was a risk. 
Of course it was, but it was uh, an internationally agreed uh, policy toward Iran. Uh, this was criticized, as we know, by President Trump during his election campaign. He was very clear uh, what his intention was, and that was to uh, end the Iran nuclear deal and to go back to putting pressure on the Iranian regime. So, of course, he did pull out. Um, none of the other signatories followed us, all criticized it. They all are trying to maintain the agreement, if at all possible. But, of course, it's getting now harder and harder, given events. Uh, the policy is called maximum pressure. Um, a, a kind of things we're doing are singling out individuals for sanctions. Once again, it's sanctions, sanctions, sanctions. Uh, trying to cut off Iranian financial institutions, um, limit their access to oil exports, all that sort of thing. Uh, the goal would be to force Iran back to the negotiating table on our terms. Um, the sticking points, the fact that Iran has been building up missiles which are not under the old agreement, and because they continue to support these militias uh, around the region. We want them to stop both of those and to renegotiate the agreement on our terms. Failing that, the goal of this policy is to cause not regime change, but to cause Iran to implode. That's the word that's used. That's used. It has caused so much domestic unrest that, uh, that, that the country would, would change. Um, and there were beginning to be signs of this as these sanctions bit. Uh, there were protests both in Iran and Iraq over economic interests. But uh, if things took a much sharper turn um, after an exchange of, of, of Iranian uh, acts, including beginning to shell our, our troops in the region, uh, which led to our very heavy response, one that was made possible by the fact we had designated the Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organization the year before. Uh, this, the Revolutionary Guard is an arm of the Iranian government. It's a state institution, theoretically, as is the Quds Force, which uh, Qasim Soleimani headed up. Um, but for us, it is a revolutionary uh, terrorist organization, and therefore this justified the attack. Um, the whole issue right now is whether there was imminent, an imminent threat. This is being roundly debated, uh, a lot of disagreement over how, uh, how severe the threat was, whether this was justified. But the results are clear. Um, this has uh, obviously uh, riled Iran. It has also uh, upset our ally, Iraq, because with Soleimani was killed Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, the deputy commander of the Popular Mobilization Forces and of the, um, the Kataib Hezbollah Brigade. Uh, the PMF, Popular Mobilization Force, is sanctioned by Ayatollah al-Sistani as a part of the government military of Iraq. Therefore, we violated their sovereignty and struck uh, a part of their military as well. And here are the two gentlemen, uh, Mr. Mr. Soleimani and uh, al-Muhandis. So we are seeing the results, and we're seeing the escalations that have followed uh, massive demonstrations. This is the second round of demonstration. The first had been against economic. This was in favor of uh, of uh, Soleimani and against the United States. Uh, the Iraq parliament voted to ask our troops to leave immediately, having violated their sovereignty. Um, it was 170 to zero because only the Shia majority showed up. The Kurdish and Sunni uh, representatives did not come. So this is a country that is still divided. This is a country that could still tip back towards civil war uh, if things are not handled correctly. Um, and, of course, the Iraqis then gave what they portrayed as a moderate response. They gave us a heads up on this. Uh, they hit at point six and seven on that map, al-Assad and Erbil, um, in the Sunni and Kurdish areas. I think they're sending a domestic signal there, too, uh, hoping that that would stop the escalation. Um, President Trump, with the military arrayed behind him, uh, gave a, an uncompromising response, saying he would not escalate, but that sanctions would be increased, uh, restating the goal that we have set for ourselves, uh, offering no immediate chance of negotiations. Um, and above all, he threatened our Iraqi allies with sanctions. He said that it would make the sanctions against Iran look like child's play. 
We would also make them pay for the bases that we had constructed there in, the, in billions of dollars. And we would cut them off from the New York Fed, where up to 250 countries and entities have their reserves. The New York Fed has that role globally. And uh, we could cut them off from that. Um, as the rest of the world watches this, they see uh, the actions of an occupying power. Uh, we are refusing to leave. And contrast this with 2011, when the Iraqi parliament also voted to have our troops leave because of Blackwater, because of the incidents with Blackwater um, private military firm. Um, they refused to give us a status of forces agreement. Uh, George W. Bush couldn't get one either. And the Obama administration then pulled out, respecting the authority of the Iraqi parliament. We were asked back in in 2014. And now we're being asked to leave again. The danger here, where this could escalate, is that the Iraqis, seeing us refuse their sovereign decision, begin to try to force us out. And we've basically declared that any attack on us, we will perceive as having come from Iran, by definition, which means that this could easily uh, get out of control in the, in the current situation. The terrible shooting down of the Ukrainian 752 aircraft, which really should not have been flying in that environment, has further roiled the situation, has led now to a third round of protests in uh, Iran. The first was against the government, against the economic situation. The second, against us. And now the third, again, against the government. Um, interestingly, the first economic protests were by the labor class, basically poorer people. These are by the middle class, students, women. These two groups have not yet linked up in the protests going on in Iran. If they ever did, it could be uh, a movement. So the domestic situation in Iran is very serious, very uh, fragile. Um, and we just have to hope that, that, that this stays on an even keel somehow going forward. Other powers are trying to maintain the deal, trying to, keep th trying to mediate but it's difficult. So that's the first region, and that's how it looks right now. I was in the State Department just a few months ago and was struck by the paradigm shift that has taken place in Washington. Just a year before, um, all the talk was still about the war on terror. At the State Department, for example, in justifying the State Department budget, it was we diplomats are on the front line of the war on terror. Um, this is why we should have funding. This year, none of that. This year. The talk was of a diplomacy gap with China. Remember the old missile gap back in the Cold War? Um, the idea that for every one economic officer in Africa, China probably has 20. Uh, they've increased their uh, diplomacy budget by over 50% in the past few years. We've cut ours by probably 40%. This whole idea is being framed in terms of China. As I went around DC, Everything was being framed in terms of China, in terms of a long-term struggle. This has settled in to the Washington establishment in both parties. Um, if anything, Chuck Schumer is criticizing Trump right now for not going far enough in trying to rein in China. So this is the new normal, for better or worse. And um, so China is on the agenda. I want to discuss now what's happening in this very fateful relationship. Um, because, uh, as I say, Washington, the, the word I kept using or hearing in DC was that, that the Washington is freaked out by China. And the basic reason is not tariffs, it's not the economy, it's tech. It's the idea that China is moving ahead of us in the key technologies of the future, AI, quantum, which have tremendous implications for military strength. Now, China's got a lot of problems. Um, and they're well aware. Uh, there is a debt situation, a debt bomb, if you will, in China that could go off. Uh, a lot of sort of phony loans have been made to corrupt local officials. It's estimated, here's the, the recent one of how many empty apartments there are in China. You can see it's up to 65 million. It looks like this all around the country. The latest estimate is 71 million. Um, these are loans that are going to go bad at some point. Um, and it's just one of many issues, uh, including climate, of course, but also inequality, that has China uh, concerned. And it has Xi Jinping tightening up at home. China is also facing problems uh, 
around its periphery as groups uh, basically start to stand up for their own freedom vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese state. Um, whether it's Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, in the South China Sea also vis-a-vis -vis neighbors, uh, the periphery is getting uh, more tense for China. Hong Kong protests have been going on now for months. Um, China blames us. I mean, it is true that a couple of times during the demonstrations, American flags were displayed. Uh, so the Chinese word is this is a basically US plot to try to destabilize China. One thing it's doing, though, is destroying any belief uh, in Hong Kong, but also in Taiwan, in the one country, two system model, which is what China has been proposing uh, for reincorporating Taiwan. Just on the 11th of January, just a few days ago, Taiwan held an election in which the pro-independence candidate Tsai Ing-wen, there she is, was re-elected just a year ago. She was very far behind in the polls. But events in Hong Kong um, and elsewhere now caused her to win by nearly 60%. Um, Beijing has been very hard on Taiwan recently, cutting off government ties, restricting visits by Chinese tourists, which has hurt the Taiwan economy. Um, they've lobbied countries to break relations. Only 15 countries today have diplomatic relations with Taiwan, and they've been conducting military exercises uh, across the straits and air patrols, all that sort of thing. But nonetheless, nonetheless, she won the election. Now, uh, public opinion in Taiwan is, realizes that to actually declare independence would be um, possibly a cause of conflict. So as much as they want to keep a distance from Beijing, as you can see, only about 4.8% would be for, uh, for independence as soon as possible. They are they're very aware of the dangerous situation there. And this is likely to keep the, the situation somewhat stable going forward with all the underlying tensions. The other area where China is, uh, is facing unrest, of course, is Xinjiang. Uh, the Uyghur people of Xinjiang, this is the oldest Turkic tribe. If you go to talk to people in Istanbul and you mention the Uyghurs, they have great respect. Uh, the Turkish nation came from out there originally. So there's a lot of sympathy for what the, the Uyghurs are going through. Um, satellite imagery has shown uh, the uh, the construction of re-education centers. Um, it's estimated up to a million Uyghurs have been put in these centers. China says that they really are for job training <laughs> and, um, and claim that they're being shut down. But it's pretty clear that this is part of a crackdown of trying to keep, uh, that there was, there, was, there was Uyghur terrorism around 19, uh, rather 2008, 9, 10, which has led to this. <clears throat> and. Um, the reason that China is so vigilant is that Xinjiang is a very important piece of real estate for them. A lot of their resources, minerals, are out there and is a linchpin in Xi Jinping's new Silk Road, the One Belt, One Road project. They hope that this project will help develop Xinjiang, make people there more accepting, um, but they are, uh, they are violating human rights uh, in the process. So. Um, so all these are problems, but, but China is making advances and showing a capacity to, for long-term planning, which has made Washington uh, quite upset and quite worried. The new Silk Road, uh, I'm sure you've read a lot about it. It's, it's well underway. Um, 80 to 90 countries are involved now, including good many of our allies. It extends into Europe. It will eventually include what the Chinese are doing in Africa. This is a vast project with China at the center. Um, we are critical of it. Uh, we're trying to get people to stand back, but it's gone forward. And China is also, um, maybe because of us, uh, showing some success now in Asia, in its own region. For Barack Obama, the centerpiece of his pivot to Asia was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's how it would look. Um, a trader area across the Pacific that would exclude China and that would have high standards from our point of view of, of intellectual uh, property rights, uh, frankly, uh, pharmaceutical company rights also, which was a, a big sticking point, and, and others. But as we know, President Trump pulled out uh, in one of his tweets uh, not that long ago. He said, oh, they're trying to get me to go back into the TPP. 
Um, I don't like it. Too many contingencies. No way to get out. Bilateral deals are far more efficient. We are, as we all know, on a bilateral wavelength here in a world of multilateral challenges. That's one of the contradictions in our foreign policy. And lo and behold, China, which as you can see here, our regional economic groupings, China's never been part of a regional economic grouping before. They've, they've done things bilaterally. And, but as of late last year now, they have engineered a new trade area for Asia. Um, and this, this area, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, uh, took flight end of the year. The only country that stayed aloof was India. The rest are all in. This is very important because uh, it has a, 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 a clear country of origin provision in it that will greatly help Chinese supply chains all through Asia. The Commerce Department is studying this and is realizing this, this is potentially a game changer for the Chinese economic role in Asia. This is going on pretty much while we're distracted with other things over here. But as I said before, the real challenge, the real um, concern in Washington is tech. China is investing massively in tech education uh, in all areas. Um, it's become a popular uh, thing. This, the, the poster uh, that was put up in China for uh, Space Day of China this year, which is still up, uh, it, it kind of encapsulates everything. You have the moon goddess Chang'e reaching down toward, toward Earth. You can see the Silk Road down below. The, um, the Great Wall, the Chinese kids, this is hanging in their schools, sort of the romance of, uh, of, of space and of tech. And the Chinese have pulled off some amazing feats recently, things we haven't done. For example, uh, last year they landed a probe on the dark side of the moon, on the other side. They did it by using um, something called the three-body problem, which, by the way, is the title of a, the most popular science fiction book in China of the past decades. It's something that, that really fires their imagination. It's, it won the Hugo Award for science fiction here. Um, how three bodies interact. Well, the Chinese used the three-body problem and what are called the Lagrange points, which are five uh, gravitationally stable points between the Earth and the Moon. They used L2 which is the most stable. They parked a satellite on it and th through that communicated from the dark side of the moon to L2 and then back to Earth. Very sophisticated operation. We're only starting to use L2 now. Uh, one, of the, um, one, of our sat one of our sort of space station um, telescopes will go up to L2 um, before too long. But the Chinese have been on top of this for quite a while. What really is the, the game changer, AI, of course, is important, but quantum. Uh, I'm not going to try to lecture on quantum because as a layman, all I know is that it is subatomic, that uh, in, in the subatomic realm, um, there's no such things as ones and zeros. Uh, there are waves. Our traditional computing, Silicon Valley style, is based on a binary structure of pluses and minus ones and zeros taken to the nth degree. Um, in a way, the Western mindset probably is pretty adapted to that kind of structure. Good and evil, you know, the way we're pretty binary culture. China is proving itself to be uniquely adept at quantum. Um, the, the famous uh, historian of science, Joseph Needham, in his great work, uh, Science and Civilization in China, posited that the Chinese actually, in their traditional worldview, are closer to modern quantum physics than the West. Uh, sort of the idea of a universe of changes rather than a kind of a bipolar structure. And lo and behold, the greatest mind, um, by all accounts, on, uh, on quantum is Jian Weipan. Here he is. Um, he studied in Vienna, went back to China, and has headed up their quantum program. And through his skill, China has launched the first quantum satellite, first quantum communication site. They successfully, last year, engineered a communication between Beijing and, I assume, his old doctoral colleagues at the University of Vienna. Um, we've not done this. And the thing about quantum is it has tremendous implications for encryption. 
because quantum communication cannot be hacked by its very nature. There's no stable plus and minus world there. You, it evaporates as you try. And so lo and behold, China announces this, a new probe to protect China from cyber attacks. Also, once it's harnessed, quantum will probably be able to overcome any uh, system of encryption. Now, it's not there yet. These are sort of early attempts at quantum, but China is in the lead, and this is making Washington very nervous because there are all kinds of implications flowing from this. Um, beyond this, China is emerging as uh, the most digitized economy. If you go to Beijing today or Shanghai, if you don't have a cell phone, you cannot function. There's no cash. There's no credit cards. Everyone use, uses WeChat and Alipay to pay with their cell phone to, uh, through apps that are linked to their bank. Um, and China now is moving toward uh, a digital currency. Um, it's not going to be Bitcoin, which is unstable. It's something called stablecoin. It's, kind of, it's a different kind of technology, believe it or not. Um, good term, I guess. Yeah. Um, the Central Bank of China is looking at establishing a digital currency. This will not be free-floating the way Libra would be. Um, Facebook's Libra, which is also a stable coin. Um, but it would be under the control of the central bank. And the idea is that if China uh, perfects this and it becomes a model for other central banks, a digital environment will emerge which will sideline the dollar. Because we're able to enact these sanctions and do what we do because of the old-fashioned economy in which we have been dominant. So once again, this is taking shape, but I'm just adding to the list of things that are making Washington nervous. Now, our response under, the, um, under our national security strategy is primarily military. Um, Trump announced in his speech against Iran that we were adding $2.5 trillion to our military. Uh, that may be a bit much, but we are expanding it greatly. It was at $611 billion per year. Uh, just a year or two ago, it's up now to uh, about 711 going higher. As you can see, we already account for about 36% of global military spending. Uh, I mentioned Russia punching above its weight earlier. Look at that, 3.4% of global military spending. Um, and China up to about 14. This is what it looks like for uh, the 2019 budget. We're spending roughly 70% of our national budget on military or veterans' benefits. Um, uh, this is the response so far to, to the challenges we're facing uh, from China and Russia. Of course, we've been following the trade war, which if it's there, but it's not really the key, quite frankly. Um, just yesterday, or rather this afternoon, uh, phase one, this is from this afternoon, the phase one deal was signed, Liu He representing uh, China and Donald Trump. Xi Jinping decided not to come, reportedly because the Chinese weren't sure whether Trump might change his mind or do something as she was arriving <laughs> that would cause him to lose face. So they decided to, to have it done at this level. Uh, Donald Trump will use this in the campaign, obviously. Uh, I think the new NAFTA may be signed tomorrow. These are the kind of successes he will point to. Um, we're going to head on now to phase two. This was a temporary cessation where we um, did not impose certain tariffs that we threatened. We uh, cut by half other tariffs. Uh, China is easing up a bit on intellectual property. They've agreed to buy $200 billion worth of our goods over the next two years. There are no details on this. Uh, we are assuming it's going to be a lot of soybeans, um, but the details are not, are not really out yet. And phase two, wh what our ultimate goal of this trade exercise is, is to make China change its system, make it stop subsidizing, get the state out of the economy. Problem is, that is their model. That is their ideology. Um, and therefore, uh, the chances of that are fairly, fairly limited. So um, we're choosing other means. We're trying to push back against China's tech to try to isolate them in the global economy. And we're telling our allies, you're either with us or you are against us in this effort, um, which, which uh, is, of course, uh, getting not necessarily rave reviews. Um, 5G, uh, 
we're afraid China will dominate the market. We, uh, we have arrested the daughter of the founder, or rather Canada did. She's still under arrest up there. It's been months and months. This is a great loss of face for China. Um, the accusation against her is one of human rights, uh, that her company, Huawei, violated the Iran sanctions. Our sanctions are extraterritorial. We vote them in our Congress, but they are extraterritorial, as far as we're concerned. And we can say that because of our role in the global economy. So um, we're not just going after Huawei. SenseTime is one of the very largest AI companies in the world. They're active all around the world. Um, we are cutting them off as well because they have supplied facial recognition cameras in Xinjiang to allow the government to monitor the Uyghurs. So once again, we're using a human rights uh, issue to cut off one of their tech companies. And ByteDance is the largest AI company in the world. And I'm, I'm envisaging a protest in Washington of 12 and 13-year-old girls. Because ByteDance owns TikTok. I'm sure many of you, through your children, grandchildren, are aware of TikTok. This is a, an app that allows kids to share uh, video up to, I don't know, a minute, minute and a half or so. Uh, frankly, I don't, I don't want to know what's in the videos, but um, this is very popular among kids. Well, we've decided that this is going to allow China to uh, amass data on our young people and on our country, which is a security threat. So we've already banned any military personnel, any military families from using TikTok. That's already been done, and it probably will take a step further. By the way, we've also told uh, communities all around the U.S. that have signed deals with Huawei, and many of them have. Many of them have, because Huawei was there first, and it's cheaper. They have one year to disentangle themselves from Huawei, to get out of those contracts, stop the contracts, whatever penalties they have to pay, and, and, and get one of our carriers. So we are, we are um, pushing them hard on this. Now, in the midst of all this, China announced on November 6th that it's beginning to develop 6G. Now, it, 6G, the, the, electromag, the electro um, grid is almost full with 5G. So 6G is going to be very different. It's going to be some kind of an air, land, and sea intelligent array is what the Chinese are saying. I, uh, Hard to know what this is. But they have announced, the Chinese Ministry of Science and Technology announced on November 6th the formation of two teams. The relevant government bodies, 37 experts from universities, scientific research institutes, and companies. They posted the photo of this team, this, this full court press all-star team that's going to develop 6G. And then announcing this, the Global Times, which is a, pretty much a mouthpiece of the party, said the following, wrote the following. The US approach is driven by companies and cannot attract the best manpower and equipment from all sectors. The Chinese tech push is based on a comprehensive approach, the research of all sectors under government guidance, which is surely more competitive. And then they go on to say, the US technological approach of splendid isolation will soon lag behind as China and Europe cooperate. That's their view of the 2020s. Now, you're starting to hear new voices in Washington. I'm starting to think that the situation as it's developing may end up um, being a jolt to our way of thinking, our way of doing things. This is Michael Kratzios, who is the Chief Technology Officer of the United States, appointed by Trump. We've, I guess we've always had a CTO. And in his recent speeches, he says it straight out. The US is falling behind China on artificial intelligence, quantum, and other areas. This is a, uh, a crisis. And he says, we must now develop collective power. In essence, we need to emulate what China's doing. We need government and private cooperation. And he's evoking World War II. 
Now, World War II, the front line had a special recently about radar and how important radar was to our victory in World War II. When the war started, you had scientists like uh, a fellow named Loomis, I think at Columbia, a few others working on their own projects, disparate. They were brought together by the government and in a coordinated way in the context of the war, quickly made the breakthrough on radar. Of course, the Manhattan Project is another example of this. Um, this is very far from the way of thinking we've had in recent decades, for sure, in which government has been the problem. This is echoed in Congress by Mark Warner of Virginia and Marco Rubio of Florida, both who sit on the, uh, on the Intelligence Com uh, Committee. And Warner's even more stark. He talks World War II and says, we've got to do things differently. There's got to be a government role in this. We've got to change our game plan. And Rubio is talking the same way, basically, a national industrial policy, which we have not had for quite a few decades. Uh, Rubio, I'll just as an aside, uh, as a spinoff from this, has been giving speeches. He gave one at the Catholic University uh, in Washington in December, basically saying the root of all of our problems is shareholder capitalism. Now, I can tell you that the Wall Street Journal has been blasting Marco Rubio ever since. The idea that a fault line might develop within the Republican Party, a kind of an intergenerational one, um, I think is not on the agenda. Um, but he's really, he, he traces suicides, family breakup, to shareholder capitalism, which I find quite striking. And as I say, the, the signs of thinking beginning to be shaken in this now. The Council on Foreign Relations just completed a major study on this very issue, on the need for more government-private uh, interaction. Is it going to be under government auspices like it was World War II? Um, is that what they mean, like government directing this? Uh, interestingly enough, for the committee, uh, for the council, um, there were no participants from the US government on the task force. And pretty much it was, what can the government do for us private corporations in this regard, rather than the opposite? Now, um, <laughs> as, I, as I mentioned, this is kind of an you're with us or against us moment here in our relations with China. And Europe is caught in the middle. China is pretty confident that with the Silk Road and with, China, with Europe's interest in tech, they will continue, in, that they will not follow our, uh, our urgings. Um, and, and yes, the Silk Road does come right into the heart of Europe um, and continues on toward Germany. Now, Mike Pompeo has been traveling around Europe, uh, basically warning, uh, threatening in some cases. He's been stalked the whole way by Ronald Reagan. Um, <laughs> there are Ronald Reagan statues popping up all over the place. There's one in Budapest. This is in downtown Budapest, where the Hungarians have a, a striding, uh, life-size statue of, of uh, Ronald Reagan, just as um, as Pompeo visited Berlin last month, they unveiled a massive 10-foot-tall statue of Ronald Reagan. This time, it was the US Embassy that did it. It stands on the veranda of the US Embassy inside the, the highly protected secure zone. But because it's 10 feet tall, it can be seen from the street. Um, so uh, anyway, keep, when you're in Europe, keep a lookout for new Reagan statues. Um, so we're telling the Germans that they should not go with Huawei. And they should not go with the Silk Road. And if they do, we may stop sharing intelligence information with them and might not be able to defend them. So uh, the reactions have begun from Germany. This is Peter Altmaier there with, uh, with Angela Merkel. He's the economy minister. He said, look, it's not in Germany's way of doing things to ban individual companies. We will strengthen our overall security requirements and that will apply to everyone. And they said, by the way, Germany did not impose a boycott on US tech companies in the wake of the National Security Agency scandal of spying in Germany, including Chancellor Merkel's cell phone. Remember that a few years ago? And he said, besides, the US government demands from its companies that it pass all information to them that's relevant to terrorism, which means, therefore, it is the US government, ultimately. Our ambassador in Germany, Richard Grinnell, was not amused 
he said, how can you dare uh, strike such moral equivalency between our two countries? And he said, um, this is the kind of thing that will cause us to block all intelligence sharing with Germany. So as I mentioned that our, our allies are pushing back and things are getting a little bit hot. Um, this is Representative Ron Kint, right from next door uh, in La Crosse. He's a Democrat. He, um, he's on all the committees dealing with these things. He gets to Europe a lot. And he said on the floor of the Congress last month, the, the competition between China and the United States will be decided by Germany. He said, whichever way Germany tips, that's going to decide the game. That's in his view. And that's after talking with a lot of officials. Now, the European Council, here's the, the new team of the European Council, um, consists of, uh, of Christian Lagarde, uh, the new central bank, uh, European Central Bank uh, chairman, um, Charles Michel on the right, who is the new, uh, uh, the new commissioner, um, and uh, Ursula von der Leyen uh, in the middle, who is the new overall EU commissioner. Um, we've been talking to them about this. And Charles Michel, one of his first public statements was this. The US will not dictate the EU's approach to, to Beijing. The EU seeks to open Chinese markets and cooperate and to jointly combat climate change, one of these shared threats, right? They're, they're putting that ahead of this kind of competition. And he said, we are not a junior partner to the United States. And in 2020, the EU will have two major summits with China, including one involving all EU uh, leaders. Now, the plot thickens with Germany. Germany is cooperating also with Russia in a way that we do not like. Um, liquefied natural gas will come from Russia via two pipelines across the Baltic. The first one is already in place, Nord Stream 1. And the second one, Nord Stream 2, is near completion. Our new European allies, the Balts, the Poles, are apoplectic about this. How, Washington, can you allow Europe to become dependent on Germany this way? You've got to stop this. And we've been protesting. Finally, now, um, Congress has instituted sanctions against Germany and Russia. They have caused this project to stop dead in its tracks because a Swiss company that was doing the laying of cables got cold feet, didn't want to be hit by US sanctions, and pulled out. The, the Russians and the Chinese are very upset about this. They've announced that they will complete the project on their own. It'll be somewhat delayed, but it will be more expensive, but they'll do it. And the German defense minister said a few weeks ago, this now is clear that Europe needs new instruments to be able to defend itself from licentious extraterritorial sanctions by the United States. Um, and another official said that this is going to require close cooperation with Russia and China. It's going to, it's going to require cooperating with banks in Russia and China to shield the EU from US sanctions. Um, as I say, this the tone of all this. And, and they're also accusing us of using coercive measures to force Europe to buy our liquefied natural gas, which, of course, we are trying to do. So this is, getting, this is actually getting fairly ugly uh, with one of our very key allies. Um, so um, Merkel, uh, in the aftermath of the Qasim uh, Soleimani killing, went straight to Moscow to coordinate on, on steps forward to try to save to try to save the deal. Um, now, Britain is, as always, an outlier. Brexit's going forward. Uh, they're coming more under our influence. Uh, Boris Johnson wants a, uh, a, 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 a big bilateral deal. Um, I think the Brits may go along with us on Huawei now, although the head of MI15, their main intelligence head, said he saw no problems with Huawei this past week, that it can be handled. Um, Boris Johnson's got a difficult mission. Having won the election on the basis of get Brexit done, he now wants to negotiate a deal with the EU by the end of this year, uh, which will be hard because Europe wants access to the market without going along with EU uh, legislation. The Tory party does not want, um, they want unfettered markets. They don't want any sort of market uh, legislation that, that binds them. So let me get rid of this here if I can. 
Um, so, get this down here. So, uh, so we'll see uh, how this goes with Britain. And of course, Scotland, uh, Lord knows what's going to happen. Um, Nicola Sturgeon won by a landslide in Scotland, just the way Trump or uh, Boris Johnson did um, nationwide. And they're going to they're going to butt heads here in a minute. So um, now, the other problem is Turkey. Erdogan is showing himself more and more as a regional leader. He's a, a prime example of what's happening in the world today as, as we're sort of breaking down into regions and regional hegemons are rising. Um, he has turned now toward Russia, purchasing their S-400 anti-aircraft system, which uh, for NATO uh, brings a lot of inc incompatibility, and we're quite upset about this. We've been threatening them. And finally, uh, the U.S. Congress on its own passed severe sanctions against Turkey. Uh, the Trump administration said, we really don't want these sanctions. We'd like to work this a while longer, but they're going to happen. Um, we've also suspended uh, delivery of F-15 joint fighters, um, and we've cut them out of aerospace cooperation. So what has Erdogan done? He's begun testing the S-400 Russian system against our F-16s. He's warning that, that uh, Turkey may now order Russian combat aircraft instead of ours. And in December, he, um, he threatened, and that's the S-400 system, by the way, which is a lot of countries are trying to get. He threatened, if the sanctions are implemented, to close the two key US military bases in Turkey. Incirlik, where we have 50 nuclear weapons, um, and um, it, it's a major staging area for the Middle East. Would he go through with this? Um, we'll see. And of course, uh, he's also become quite active regionally. He's going into Libya now. Um, both Russia and, uh, um, and Turkey are in Libya. The Europeans, who kind of knocked off Gaddafi, are divided among themselves. They pulled back. Just like in Syria, it's Russia and it's Turkey that are calling the shots right now. And um, they're on opposite sides of the fence, but they're trying to get the two sides to talk. As you can see, the Libyan National Army, which is not sanctioned by the UN, under uh, Khalifa Haftar, is, has surrounded um, Tripoli uh, under the, the real prime minister, according to the UN, Fayez al-Saraj, and is threatening now to invade. Um, there are the two men. Uh, that's, that's General Haftar on the right. He pulled out of the negotiations in Moscow a few days ago, and Turkey now is threatening to attack his forces in Libya. So once again, this is a, this is a NATO ally who is going off very much on its own. I'm getting toward the end here, believe me. Um, in, this, in this atmosphere, and this is actually singled out in our national strategy document, Russia and China are closer now than, than they've ever been really since the 1960s, before the Sino-Soviet rift. Xi Jinping said in December when they signed a major partnership agreement, he said, the United States and other Western countries have increased their interference in the internal affairs of China and Russia threatening the sovereign security of the two countries and impeding their economic and social development. China and Russia must cooperate to safeguard their core interests and the common security of the two countries, maintain regional, right? These are regional powers and world peace and stability. Uh, they've signed a major agreement for 2020 in communications, AI, internet, 800 events are planned a whole new level of what they call comprehensive and strategic partnership. Russia is selling the S-400 to China, helping them to get early warning system against our ICBMs, and they're holding uh, joint exercises. And their energy cooperation is also getting closer. So this, the signs of this sort of um, coming together is significant. Ordinarily, a great power would not allow this to happen between the two main challenging powers. This is kind of goes, this is at odds with traditional diplomacy. Um, we ourselves were aware of that in 1972 when Nixon visited China. The whole idea was to separate China from the main enemy, at that time Russia. Um, and that successfully uh, took place with Henry Kissinger in the background. Kissinger is still around. This is just a couple weeks ago in Beijing. Um, he has been arguing for some time now that we have to stop driving these two countries together, and that ultimately we should try to get closer to Russia. Frankly, this is what Trump was hearing 
as he came in. He, his main, he, he was asked by the New York Times, who do you listen to most in foreign affairs? And he said in the interview, Henry Kissinger. Uh, and this is what he was hearing from him. And of course, he interpreted it in his own way. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but lo and behold, just last week, Mike Pompeo gave an interview to the, uh, to the, um, the Wall Street Journal and said the following. He said, you know, the rise of China now is creating an opportunity for us uh, for a different relationship with Russia. Our big issue is competition with China. We've talked with the Russians, and they want a better relationship with us. So in the next year, I'll be spending a lot of time with my counterpart. This is Sergei Lavrov. Putin is toxic, right? He can't talk about meeting with Putin. But Lavrov, OK. Um, as will all of my colleagues in the cabinet as we seek uh, to find places where we can cooperate and move forward together. This, I mean, given the toxicity of our domestic situation, this is quite an interesting shift. Um, you know, as Kissinger said back in 2000, a policy that is perceived by the US as having designated China the main enemy because its economy is growing and because its ide ideology is distasteful will end up isolating the US. So is this the beginning of this administration trying to break out of some of this isolation? We will see. By the way, uh, along the lines of good news, and I'm getting very close here to the end, um, good news. Vladimir Putin is drinking beer. Um, this is actually significant. The, the old sort of clear alcohol Russia um, has been taking some hits. Um, since 2008, there's an excise tax on alcohol. Uh, sales of spirits at sports events have been banned. TV ads for alcohol are banned. Drinking in public is banned. And as a result, in the past 10 years, drinking has cut in half in Russia, from 18 liters, 18 liters per capita to nine, heading down toward eight. That is less than France, Germany, and other, nor other countries, according to the WHO, um, by the way, it, nine, eight liters a year of, of clear alcohol is considered the limit. And as a result, Russian life expectancy is going way up by about seven years. You can see how bad it was in Russia in the 90s. And of course, this is part of Putin's narrative, right? That the country was literally falling apart physically as well. Male life expectancy went down to 58 during this period. And now it's coming up to 93. And you can guess who's getting the credit for this. Um, now, actually, for the future, there are more important parts of the world. There are more important issues than these geopolitical dust-ups I've just been describing. Africa is the continent of the future. There's absolutely no doubt about this. Um, if, you look at, if you look at demographics, um, it's amazing how rapidly our species is proliferating on this planet. It, this, of course, has tremendous implications for climate, for all these sustainability issues. Uh, we've doubled just in 100 years between 1800 and 1900, and we've just been skyrocketing since, past 9.6, heading for as high as 11 or 12. Um, this is going to change the face of this century, obviously. And here are, this is very recent from Pew. This is the latest tabulation of the world's largest countries in 2100. Five of the top 10 are uh, in Africa, right below Egypt at the, at the, is Uganda, just below, didn't, just didn't quite make it. Um, you can see the shift that is taking place and how a country like Nigeria now will come up uh, to over 700 million, according to current projections. Of course, things can change. Um, so Africa is going to be a huge part of the human story. And regionally, and I come back to regional challenges and our attempt to uh, prevent regional competitors, um, Europe is fading. Europe is fading demographically. And we would be, too, were it, were it not for immigration. Um, Africa will be up to about, it's true, uh, Africa will be up to about 40% of humanity at current projections uh, between Africa and um, in Asia, you'll have about 80% or more of humanity. A country like Ethiopia is, you know, this, this dichotomy is just clear as a bell. And ironically, in the past 10 years, the country with the highest growth rate 
in the world has been Ethiopia. In the world, and a number of African countries as well. The common denominator, according to the Financial Times, is that these are countries that are dealing extensively with China, where China is heavily involved. They're the ones that have the increasing growth rate. And Africa's great gross domestic product is rising. Um, other positive things are happening. There's been an agreement just yesterday in South Sudan. Some of the conflicts that have been roiling Africa, there's an attempt at least to get them under control. And for the past few years, Africa has been trying to negotiate a continent-wide free trade zone for the entirety of Africa. And late last year, they pulled it off. There is now an all-Africa free trade zone. Uh, I think only one, I can't remember which country it was, maybe Eritrea, 54 out of 55 African countries. Pardon? Morocco. Morocco, thanks for that. Yeah, so yeah, maybe you can tell us why they didn't do it. Anyway, so, so Morocco is the one country out of 55 uh, that didn't sign. Um, these are all tremendously positive uh, things for Africa. India is, at the moment, a less happy story. Um, you know, they've got this perpetual issue of a large Muslim majority, of about 200 million people. And uh, Prime Minister Modi in his second term now is revealing himself to be a Hindu nationalist um, and uh, invoking Lord Ram, uh, building Hindu sites on top of, of mosques. And um, also his forces are cracking down on dissent in the universities and such. It is not a pretty picture. And in terms of global politics, what he's done in, in Kashmir, basically annexing Kashmir last year, uh, was a very dangerous step. This obviously between Pakistan and India. This is a, uh, an unsolved issue that has just gotten worse. It's a very complicated part of the world. We'll see where this goes. Finally, our own region really should be, in an era of regions, our priority. Why are we not building high-speed infrastructure uh, all through our region, our own region? Why are we not working? with Mexico, with Canada, in, a, in, in the way other regions are working uh, uh, with their members. You know, for the first time since 1811 last year, or first half of last year, Mexico became our number one trading partner. That has not happened since 1811. Um, so the potential here is tremendous. And unauthorized immigration from Mexico is actually down. It, peaked around 2007 uh, and has been going down. Uh, a lot of the immigration coming through Mexico is from the Triangle region of Honduras, uh, down in that area. Here is the chart of our <clears throat> immigration, number of foreign born in our country. You can, you can see the, the patterns here. It reached about nearly 14% after World War I when the anti-immigrant reaction settled in. And a country of origin uh, legislation was passed that basically allowed only North Europeans to come in. Um, that's why the Jews were not let in uh, in the 30s. And it went down and down until by the mid-60s, we were only 5% foreign-born. As part of the civil rights movement, that legislation was seen as racist, which it was. And ever since, it's been going up and up and up. We're back to that level now, which set off a reaction before. Uh, many countries have a higher percentage than we do. Many countries have a higher percentage of foreign-born. Um, and of course, on refugees, we are throttling back down to 18,000 only uh, for this next year, down from about uh, over 80 a couple of years ago. That means that really only about 9,000 will come in. We only usually let in half. The last two months of last year, no refugees came in to the country. So I'm back to my starting point. The threats today are common. The threats today are shared. Um, we're falling back into old think. Uh, we need to redefine our, our threat analysis. Um, it's, it's nuclear. Uh, there's a nuclear arms race underway. We've pulled out of key agreements. Um, new, new weapons are being developed. This is the Russian Zircon hypersonic missile, which can hit our aircraft carriers. They have a hypersonic transcontinental now against which they claim there's no defense. We're developing the same things. There has to be negotiations among the great powers on arms control. The nuclear threat is too grave. Um, and of course, climate. Uh, China is both the greenest and the most polluting country in the world. It, it has the most green technology, but it accounted for over half of the increases in CO2 emissions last year. Um, they're going back to coal. All over China, there are scenes like this. Uh, many countries are relying back on coal, Germany. Um, India to electrify its villages. Here are the 
the most recent list of the top polluted cities in the world, and 15 of them are in India, which has by far the greatest. But, but these, are the, these are the issues that really must be taken in hand. The other ones are, are secondary to this. So this is a view from space of the rainforests burning in Brazil. Um, actually, pressure was brought on Bolsonaro to get this underway, and actually with some threats, um, some things were, were done, uh, uh, but it took the international community to really weigh in. This is a generational thing, too. Obviously, um, for this new generation that may emerge in the next decade or so, this will be higher up. I'll conclude by saying, in my view, we face three trade-offs based on the foregoing. Number one, as I said, between national threats, the old-style geopolitical competitions, and the shared global threats, which are, really are the ones now that, 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 that our species has to be concerned about. We have to find a balance or a trade-off between unfettered markets and a national industrial policy in many areas. And if we're going to work with these other powers, and this, this will be the hardest to do, we've got to find a balance. I'm not saying we have to disregard, but a balance between active promotion of our values and stable relations among great powers. There's got to be a balance to be found there somehow. Um, all three of these are going to be a tall order going forward. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions.